listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured episode 222. In this edition, we are talking about the general strike in Palestine. But first, the news. The big question looming over the future of the gig economy is whether and how the companies powering gig work will be regulated. There have over the years been multiple attempts to hold these companies accountable and bind them to certain labor standards, and there have also been efforts to roll those back. The Trump administration moved to loosen some of the definitions of employee to give gig companies like Uber and Lyft more leeway to circumvent labor standards. The Biden administration is starting to reverse some of those changes. But a lot of action has been happening at the state level. You may recall the landmark AB5 law in California, which we reported on earlier, which sought to codify employment status for rideshare drivers and other gig workers. That was met with swift, sharp backlash by the rideshare industry and resulted in the infamous Proposition 22 referendum, which effectively nixed AB5 and solidified independent contractor status for rideshare drivers and thus preempted them from gaining basic employment protections under California law. That debate is now rolling into New York. There has been talk of a new law similar to Prop 22, but with a few compromises aimed at satisfying the demands of organized labor. The planned legislation, first reported by Bloomberg News, is reportedly being pushed by gig economy companies like Uber, and that may be reason number one to be wary of this initiative. According to the report, which is, by the way, co-authored by former belabored co-host Josh Idelson, the draft legislation would establish collective bargaining rights for gig workers, but would simultaneously establish their non-employee status. So under this hybrid model, gig workers would be able to bargain collectively under what gig economy companies call sectoral bargaining. As we've reported previously, the sectoral bargaining model enables workers to band together under a common set of demands and create a collective bargaining agreement that covers multiple employers within one industrial sector. The draft legislation in New York, however, has raised some hackles among labor advocates who think that this model of collective bargaining will end up taking away more rights than it gives to gig workers. This effort follows a failed attempt to pass similar legislation for gig workers in Connecticut and organized labor balked at that one. So what's going to happen in Albany? To figure out what this legislation might mean for gig workers in New York and beyond, I talked to Vina Dubal, a law professor at University of California, Hastings, who has been observing these legislative discussions around gig work. Based on what you know about how these folks operate, what do you anticipate uh, will be in this bill? And why would TWU or any union uh, be in favor of such a law? Yeah. So I think that what this bill um, will do is to give, uh, ostensibly give um, workers in um, that are ride hail or food delivery workers access to what what they're calling sectoral bargaining, which sounds really exciting because we all know that collective rights are better than individual rights. Um, But the problem with it is that uh, the only thing that these companies will agree to and that they have agreed to probably anywhere in the world is, um, is an agreement that insists that these workers only be paid for about two-thirds to a half of the time that they spend laboring. So the bill itself will not touch the business model, the basic business model, which is itself the problem. In versions that I've seen of um, sectoral bargaining agreements, where they almost reach an agreement um, in, in California and, um, and elsewhere, uh, the agreements have said that workers will only be paid for time after they're allocated work. And, and that is sort of a basic, um, basic structural 
function of their exploitative business models. Um, and so what I am extremely worried about is that while um, uh, that the companies are using sort of the, the language of collective rights to stamp out um, really important individual rights, um, including <laughs> including the right to a minimum wage and overtime, which is sort of just a basic um, a basic thing that you know all workers should theoretically have. Um, we've we've spent so much time in the past year talking about how the minimum wage is not enough um, for people to survive in this country, and it's notable that workers in this economy don't even have access to that. Um, and so, I think that reason the reason that unions are sort of glomming on to this idea is because they're just giving up. Um, they, the idea that they could have political power through membership um, is, is very appealing. You know, it's a different model of unionism. It's business unionism. The more membership you have, the idea is the more membership you have, the more political power you have, and you, and you sort of um, exert, exert your collective power that way. It's not a model of unionism that's really um, rooted in, in social movement building, in um, in fighting uh, in fighting capital for for a, a larger share of the pie um, and and so you know I um, it's the same same mistake I would say that unions in Calif some unions in California made um, we averted the mistake because we said look you are if you agree to this if you agree to this you know so-called sectoral bargaining arrangement you are actually giving up rights that workers are owed um, and we and we know that the same to be true in in the New York context. Um, we know the New York courts have found that workers are employees for purposes of um, unemployment insurance, likely uh, employees for purposes of workers' compensation. We know that the, uh, the Biden um, wage and hour administrator says that they are employees for purposes of, of, um, of federal wage and hour laws. We know uh, as of this morning that um, that the general counsel of national labor relations board thinks that they're employees for purposes of, of federal collective bargaining rights. So um, it really would be giving away rights that workers are owed and, and capitulating to an exploitative business model that will spread to other sectors. Yeah. It's almost like an exchange for some form of union membership. They'd actually be losing rights that they're guaranteed under the law as employees. <laughs> it's it's extremely um, manipulative and evil, and um, and I understand the appeal. You know, I've heard I've heard colleagues, I've heard and seen colleagues who I who I deeply respect say, "Well, this is better than nothing." And the the reality is is that we're not in a position where workers would get nothing under the existing laws. Um, we are we are in a democratic administration that has made a pillar of of their. Um, position on labor rights, that gig work is regular work, it is employee work. Um, and so giving up at this point seems um, strategically the wrong decision. And that was part of my interview with Vina Dubal, professor of law at UC Hastings. If you'd like to hear a longer version of that interview, you can go to our Patreon at patreon.com slash belabored. And don't forget to check out Sarah's article on sectoral bargaining and the gig economy called The Battle for the Future of Gig Work over at Vox. This week, workers with the Fight for 15 held yet another strike from stores across the country, pegged to the McDonald's shareholders meeting and demanding that McDonald's in particular give its workers a raise to $15 an hour. 
having been essential workers through the pandemic, they're calling for acknowledgement of that fact. And since Kirsten Cinema and others voted down the $15 an hour minimum wage increase, they are leaning on the companies in order to get it. I spoke with Precious Cole, one of those workers from Durham, North Carolina, about the strike. She told me about the two strikes she'd gone on at her employer during the pandemic, where she worked at Freddy's, a local fast food chain. And twice, she and her coworkers walked out when they found out a coworker had tested positive for COVID. They eventually won paid sick and self-isolation time through their safety strikes. Now she's working at McDonald's, which recruited her and offered her more than she's ever made in fast food, but it's still not $15 an hour. And she said, we want that 15. We want a union so that stuff like this can't happen and that we have a voice. This is us letting them know we are here to stay and we're going to be in your face. Every time you turn around, we will be there. These strikes are happening, of course, at the same time as Republican governors are deciding to reject expanded federal unemployment funds in order to force their constituents back into work, and specifically back into food service, as service industry employers have been complaining to anyone who will listen, mostly local reporters, that nobody wants to work anymore. As I wrote at the American Prospect, those complaints were picked up at the national level by the usual suspects. Megan McArdle, Fox Business, which calls unemployment benefits no-work bonuses, the New York Post, and of course, Larry Summers, who we think is still mad that he's not in Joe Biden's cabinet. And that, in turn, gave the Republicans cover for doing what they have wanted to do from the beginning, force people to keep working even when it's unsafe. We should remember that senators from many of the same states now slashing benefits, I've seen you, Lindsey Graham, opposed expanding them even when Trump was in charge. With a Democrat in the White House, those states are happy to reject the funds entirely. But as friend of the show, Andrew Stetner of the Century Foundation points out, quote, state legislators and state governors have been allowed to whittle Francis Perkins and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's unemployment insurance program back to basically nothing over time. The wins at the federal level, it's kind of filled the gaps. But as you can see, as soon as the states feel emboldened, they slash it right back. People like to have the army of the unemployed available, end quote. With the federal funds rejected, unemployment benefits in Precious Cole's home state are just an average of $236 a week. Could you live on $944 a month? What if you have family to take care of as Precious Cole, who lives with her mother who has health issues, does? And Stetner noted, it's not remotely clear that unemployment benefits, rather than, say, an ongoing childcare crisis, are the reasons for workers not rushing back into service industry jobs. With schools still closed in many places and summer vacation approaching, people have to balance childcare with paid work in a way that's already resulted in many more women leaving the paid workforce. Also, it's no accident that in the states cutting unemployment, the workers getting benefits are disproportionately Black and Latinx particularly Black women like Precious Cole. As I wrote in the piece, this reflects a long tradition in American politics. As political scientist Melinda Cooper writes in her book, Family Values Between Neoliberalism and the New Social Conservatism, the tradition of personal and family responsibility in American welfare policy is rooted in Elizabethan and early colonial era poor laws, which placed strict conditions on who could get help and who had to yank on those proverbial bootstraps. 
In Regulating the Poor, Francis Fox Piven and Richard Cloward argue that relief policies, particularly in periods of crisis like the pandemic, are designed to tamp down the possibility of civil disorder and also reinforce work norms, not just that one must work in order to be worthy of money, but to maintain inequalities and determine how some people are made to do the harshest work for the least reward. The massive protests and riots last summer in the wake of the police killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis reminded us of the kind of civil disorder that policymakers want to avoid in expanding unemployment and sending out stimulus checks. Now that employers want to reopen and the protests have shrunk, the pairing back of unemployment benefits was entirely predictable. But the interaction between these two needs, order and cheap labor, also means that the paired back benefits also work to punish those who might have been part of those protests. In other words, it's not an accident that Black workers will bear the brunt of the cutbacks. So what's the solution? In part, it needs to be federal universal programs that are not means-tested and that don't allow states to pick and choose which ones they want to administer. And in part, it's going to come from workers like Precious Cole, who noted that it's no wonder people don't want to go back to food service. Why would people go back to a job that doesn't treat them fairly, that's paying them poverty wages, that doesn't want to hear anything they have to say, she asked. We are the ones in the trenches making the decisions for your company. We're making the foods for your company. We're dealing with your nasty customers with a smile on our faces. We are the ones that go home every day tired. All this talk in the media about post-pandemic economic recovery can sometimes give the impression that employers are scrambling to find workers, and workers are in a great position to demand higher wages and to shop around for good jobs. But the current fluctuations in the labor market actually mask a perverse trend that has been unfolding over the past half century of wages stagnating or declining while corporate executives have been accruing vastly disproportionate amounts of wealth. Meanwhile, there has been a sharp divergence between what workers are earning on the one hand and the economic productivity that they help produce on the other. A new study by the Economic Policy Institute says that the typical reasons given for so-called wage stagnation are just wrong. Others blame supposedly, quote, apolitical market forces that one neither can nor would want to alter, unquote, or technological advancements that supposedly undermine jobs through automation. But EPI argues that people and policies have created these degraded working conditions. The group points out that the most egregious forms of economic inequality reflect political dynamics. There is, quote, an increased share of compensation among the top earners, especially those in the top 1% and 0.1%, along with a declining share of income going to labor, unquote. And at the same time, quote, wage disparities by gender, race, and ethnicity from the late 1970s, reflecting systemic sexism and racism, remain with us and have sometimes even worsened, unquote. So deepening economic inequality seems to coincide with the solidification of social inequality on multiple levels. API identifies several root causes, which include, quote, austerity macroeconomics, including facilitating unemployment higher than it needed to be to keep inflation in check and responding to recessions with insufficient force, as well as corporate-driven globalization resulting from policy choices, largely at the behest of multinational corporations that undercut wages and job security of non-college-educated workers, 
and purposely eroded collective bargaining, resulting from judicial decisions and policy choices that invited ever more aggressive anti-union business practices. And there are also, quote, weaker labor standards, including a declining minimum wage, eroded overtime protections, non-enforcement against instances of wage theft, or discrimination based on gender, race, and or ethnicity, unquote. According to EPI, these factors, along with several others outlined in the report, account for the majority of the abysmal gap that has emerged between wages and productivity in recent years. So basically, the next time someone tells you that wage stagnation is a byproduct of abstract and inevitable market forces, bear in mind that those forces are in large part set in motion by the deliberate strategies of politicians, corporate lobbyists, and conservative courts. And if you're having trouble seeing evidence of this in the news headlines or in our political debates, that's because you're not supposed to. The nurses at St. Vincent Hospital in Worcester, Massachusetts, are still on strike in what is the country's longest active picket line and what we are pretty sure is the longest nurses' strike since 2004. I called up Marlena Pellegrino, a nurse at the hospital who's been there since they first formed the union, to hear the latest on the strike. My name is Marlena Pellegrino, and I'm a registered nurse um, from Worcester, Massachusetts. I've worked at St. Vincent Hospital for 40 years. Sorry, 34 years and counting. And um, we've been on strike for, I think this is our 73rd day. Oh, my goodness. That's where we are right now. (laughs) Pretty amazing. I guess now it's the longest uh, longest strike, I think, in Massachusetts history, they're saying right now. Wow. Um, So we ran some numbers. surreal. Yeah, we ran some numbers and, and found, I think it's the longest nurses' strike since like 2003 or 2004. Yep, that so. sounds about right. I was on strike in 2000, and that uh, first strike was 49 days. It's challenging to be on strike, but it was more, you know, it was more challenging to be in there and yeah. not able to care for your patients. I, I think just the length of the strike and the strength of the numbers mm-hmm. of nurses that remain on strike just kind of, it's kind of indicative of where, you know, where nurses are. It's just, it's not right to you know, not be able to get your patients properly, not right not have the right number of nurses at the bedside, yeah. and to work for a company that makes so much money but doesn't put it back into patient care. And I think nurses are just um, as hard as it is to be on strike without pay, without health insurance. Um, yeah. It's uh, it's kind of like a stand. You just feel it's it's inside you. You know, it's kind of like you you have, just, you have to do it. Yeah. it. The time I guess the time has come. I I think I said. A nurse the other day on the ticket line. It's sometimes the sometimes the battle chooses you. You don't actually choose the battle. And I don't think we all thought it would be such a big battle. We thought it was just a group of nurses at our hospital. We're fighting for our contract and our patients. Mm-hmm. But it seems that it hit a nerve. I think with nurses from around the state, the country, yeah. maybe kind of like the world right now. And um, I think the pandemic had a lot to do with that. So. Now it seems we're into a bigger, a bigger thing, but we're accepting that as you know. I guess it's, I guess it's our battle to fight. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, what is the latest that you've been hearing from the hospital? Oh well, the hospital. I don't know when we last talked, but we had we had gone back to the table. They called us back to the table mm-hmm. on, I think it was May first right after we had received unemployment benefits, an approval for unemployment benefits. So they hadn't talked to us for like eight weeks. And then as soon as we heard that we were eligible for unemployment, 
the mediator reached out to us and said the hospital wanted to meet and they had a proposal for us. Yeah. And we met two days later. We took their proposal, which was pretty lengthy. It was like 18 pages long. Mm-hmm. And we met as a, we have a 21 member committee, mm-hmm. 21, 23 members. And we really went through it, you know, for at least 10 to 12 hours. We, we made a thoughtful counter proposal that, you know, use some of their concepts, but we had to have the staffing that we need at the bedside. So we put a lot of time into that and we presented it to them on May 5th. We didn't come to a settlement. So we, we asked the hospital, you know, we had, we presented them uh, our counter proposal last on that night um, because it was their turn. And they, um, they took the next day, they told the mediator, no, they refuse, they, they're refusing to meet with us on that Friday. And, and on, they're refusing to meet with us in any way unless we come up with a more reasonable proposal that they like more. <laughs> so, um, so that's where we are. So that's not negotiations. Um, the yeah. ball is in their court. So they basically, you know, threw a little bit of a temper tantrum as a child would do. They, they didn't see what they liked on the table. We didn't sign on the dotted line that day yeah. that apparently they thought we would just sign it and take it. Um, so they they stomped away from the table, and within five days, they started a campaign of um, posting our jobs. So now mm-hmm. their uh, their tactic is they are hiring uh, permanent, they call them permanent strike replacement workers. It's a pretty low level, one of the lowest level tactics I've ever seen. Um, mm-hmm. It shows a real desperate, a real desperate corporation grasping and uh you know, the lack of integrity is just glaring. So that's their ploy yeah. right now. Um, they know that they we are not getting health insurance. Um, they're holding up our health insurance, uh, our COBRA benefits, which could have been approved um, anytime. They could have sent the papers out anytime in the last month, but they're taking their legal right to hold that off until May 31st. So mm-hmm. they know they have uh, nurses without health insurance, basically, until May 31st or after, and they're yeah. using that time. That, that's two or three weeks from when they started this. Um, it's all about getting their scaring. It's all about scare tactics, intimidation, coercion. Uh, you know, managers and other staff from the hospital are reaching out to nurses by text and, you know, email saying they're going to post your jobs. You're going to, you know, you're going to lose your 36-hour position. Just a lot of pressure, a lot of, um, they're, lo- they're looking to see, um, how many nurses might cross back in and they're looking to break. That's basically breaking a strike. It's right. basically union busting straight up. Yeah. Hardcore, hardcore union busting. So, um, so that's where we are. That we're in, we're in the, that battle right now. We are willing to come back to the table anytime. We told them that um, it is their turn to present us a counter proposal, mm-hmm. but they've chosen to, um, to use these tactics instead. Yeah. Yeah, it seems like they really are counting on using things like holding up first your unemployment and now your health insurance in order to push you to accept. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. They really are trying to test the strength of our strike and the unity of the nurses, the solidarity, and how much we actually want um, safe staffing, you know, how much we're... It's as if they don't believe we're actually out there on behalf of our patients. They think they can either buy us off 
or they can um, scare us, threaten us. They think we're gonna we're gonna bow down to that. Um, I think they really underestimate nurses, but it is very um, you know this company has a lot of money, uh, tons of they've spent. I'm sh- I'm gonna say I don't know the exact figure, but it's in excess of sixty million dollars in the last 73 days, 72, 73 days, um, in excess of $60 million to keep us out of that hospital, to keep this strike prolonged so that they can break us. And the, the fact that we've, not only we've withstood this, but we, we remain more resolved and more passionate than ever about the uh, cause is, you know, in the face of what, the healthcare corporation that we're battling, you know, they're a multi-billion dollar healthcare conglomerate across the country. Yeah. I mean, they own 67 hospitals or so, hundreds of thousands of surgery centers. Um, but I think it's something that's going on everywhere in healthcare. And I think that the pandemic just kind of put a spotlight on what nurses and other healthcare professionals face and what they think for the last year and a half, what they did, the sacrifices they made, and to know that um, if you if you back nurses into a corner, and the choices, you know, you're not going to be able to care for your patients properly, and your the disrespect to your patients and your profession, nurses are going to, um, you know, just because it's a compassionate profession, doesn't mean that you know it's a weak profession. And I think that corporations really underestimate the power of nurses, and I believe they do that in large part because it is a female-dominated profession. So we have, you know, many wonderful male nurses. But, you know, we have to be honest, it still remains a female-dominated profession. And I think that is a big factor in what corporations use, um, use tactics uh, that, you know, they may not use on others, guilting, shaming, um, manipulation, deception, to try to... um, squash our voices. If you have a legally protected voice, as we do as unionized nurses at St. Vincent, um, they, they want to, they want to put a stop to that. They don't, we, we stand in their way uh, of just running through the hospital, running it as if it's a factory and nurses who stand up and have a legal right to do so. And we do it responsibly. Um, but we do it, you know, vigilantly, and we, we we do it powerfully because we believe in it. We, you know, if a nurse isn't standing up for the patient, we, we're the last line of defense at that bedside. Yeah. There's no one else, you know, that has, um, we, you know, we are charged with being responsible for the patient's life 24 hours a day. You take that responsibility very seriously. So I think that um, this is something that nurses everywhere I'm guessing our feeling and have been feeling for many years. And I think that it, the time has just come where, um, you know, enough is enough. You have to put patients first. And that's why we all got into this profession to begin with. That was Marlena Pellegrino, a nurse at St. Vincent Hospital with the Massachusetts Nurses Association and currently on strike. Israel continues to bomb Gaza, including hospitals, a COVID testing laboratory, and the building that houses the AP, Al Jazeera, and other media, and to evict Palestinians from their homes. 
In response, Palestinians this week held a general strike, stopping work across the West Bank, Gaza, and within Israel, highlighting Israel's dependence on devalued Palestinian labor and showing a new level of unity and commitment within the resistance movement. Here in the U.S., people have talked a lot lately about general strikes, but what does it actually take to pull one off, especially across an area that has three different sets of laws and restrictions for Palestinian workers and while under active bombardment? We talked to Palestinian political economy researcher Raya Al-Saneh, who is the author of several reports on labor and workers' rights in Palestine, including a recent one for the International Trade Union Confederation. We'll put links to her research up at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. So I know this is an impossibly broad question to ask, but to start off for our listeners who haven't been following this closely, can you give us a brief overview of the situation right now in Palestine? Okay, well, um, we Palestinians, I guess we have, we have to start from the start, right? Uh, Palestine, yeah. <laughs> Palestine, for, for those who don't know, might want to contend it, uh, Palestine has been colonized since 1948. Um, the Israeli state has established a settler colony in Palestine. Over 700, 750,000 Palestinians were expelled from Palestine, uh, throughout that process. Um, and today, Palestinian communities are fragmented um, and live under different kind of systems of colonial rule. So there are about two million people in the Gaza Strip who have been under a siege, a military air water siege since 2007. Um, they are currently being bombarded by Israeli warplanes. Over 230 people have been killed over the last five to six days. Um, just to note that COVID is still very much a reality for people on the ground in Gaza, uh, very little vaccination. So people, people's homes, hospitals uh, are being bombed and the only COVID-19 testing facility in Gaza has also been bombed by Israeli airstrikes. Um, there are Palestinians living in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, 2.5 million people um, under direct Israeli military rule in the West Bank, East Jerusalem has been annexed illegally by um, by Israel. And there are about 2 million Palestinians that live in what people would know as the Israeli state today. They carry Israeli um, IDs. Um, and there are the mass majority of Palestinians are refugees. About 6 million Palestinians are refugees who are waiting and wanting to return home. Um, and so... This is kind of the fragmented reality of the Palestinian people. Um, an Israeli settler colonial rule inflicts violence on each section of the Palestinian people in a very different kind of way. Um, and what we see today developing in Palestine has to be contextualized in that context, of a context of a settler colonial rule from 1948, of a people struggling for freedom and a people that are struggling for justice. Um, and so for two weeks now, um, specifically since Israel's direct, deliberate and intensified attacks against Palestinian communities in Jerusalem and against uh, Al-Aqsa Mosque. Al-Aqsa Mosque for Palestinians, not only of religious significance, but of its fundamentally political significance. It's our national, it has national symbolism. The Israel's attack against Al-Aqsa Mosque is against, against our 
political cause. Um, and specifically the case of Sheikh Jarrah families, about four families um, at the moment facing expulsion from their homes. In total, around over 20 families are facing expulsion from uh, the neighborhood of Sheikh Jarrah in Jerusalem. Um, and the family have put a heroic uh, fight um, against their eviction. And, and, the quest, and the issue of expulsion of Palestinians from their homes really hit hard for Palestinians because we all face that. We all have faced that in the past as a people, but we continue to face that um, even in, in the Naqab. So again, Palestinians who are carrying Israeli IDs, over 80,000 people are set to be displaced um, from their land um, and their homes demolished uh, for Israeli kind of infrastructure projects, for Israeli military bases, for the construction of Israeli Jewish only homes um, and towns and so on. And so the idea and the feeling of expulsion is one that um, it is really deep, sits really deep within us, uh, but it's one that is very much ongoing. And so what what has been happening over the past two weeks is people resisting against all of this and against kind of structural violence that has manifested itself in various different ways. Um, and what we've seen also particularly in Palestine 48, i.e. Um, Israel, is we've seen how specifically um, ultra-nationalist groups, uh, Israeli Jewish group, ultra-nationalist groups, have been um, used and utilized as kind of the unorganized arm of the Israeli state that can inflict violence um, on Palestinian communities across, um, across Israel. Um, and they have been working hand-in-hand hand with the Israeli police, attacking communities, um, uh, killing people, people have been killed at the hand of these kind of Israeli ultra-nationalist groups. Um, and this has really kind of formed an even greater wedge between um, Palestinians um, and the kind of the, the colonized society, uh, the colonizers. Um, and, um, and, and, and there has been a massive wave of resistance against this that has manifested in different ways. So can you tell us a little bit about how the general strike came together this week? Um, who was involved in calling it? Who sort of signed on to be part of it? Yeah, so um, again, the kind of what has happened in Palestine over the past two weeks has been phenomenal in the sense that it has uh, brought Palestinians together in a way that we haven't seen really um, in the past um you know, uh, in the past years, um, it, it is every section of the Palestinian people coming up, rising up against the whole structure of oppression, but also against the particular forms in which Israel's settler colonial regime manifests itself against them or against us in that particular locality. Um, so in Palestine 48, we've been facing huge levels of Israeli police violence um, uh, um, and the Israeli state actively facilitating violence within the communities. So, so, for example, during these two weeks, police stations were particularly targeted, police cars were particularly targeted as a symbolism of this kind of institutions of, of oppression. 
Um, and with kind of rising levels of oppression, but also rising levels of resistance, and what we see in Gaza, of just a, a slaughter of, of, of people that have nowhere to go, they are imprisoned um, in Gaza and they're being bombed from the air. Um, and this is not the first time. It happened in 2014, it happened in 2008, it happened in 2010. Like it's, it's, it's a kind of an ongoing reality for people of Gaza. Yeah. And so against the backdrop of all of this, a political general strike was announced. Um, and maybe it is important, you know, maybe a, a particularity about this, uh, this strike is that it wasn't actually called by the Palestinian trade union movement. Um, it was actually called from below. Uh, it was pressure from the streets that forced then kind of Palestinian bodies or representative bodies to join on to the call for the strike. So for Palestinian communities in Israel, it was called by the by the High Commission um, that represents kind of is the political representation of Palestinians in 48. Um, and in the West Bank, it was called by activist groups and groups on the ground and the trade unions were forced to kind of join on to it. Um, and at the end, the, the majority of Palestinian trade unions in the West Bank um, and Gaza supported the strike, joined in in force. In Palestine 48, um, maybe people, your, your listeners might not be aware of this, but Palestinians in Israel are not allowed to have their independent trade union representation. Mm-hmm. They are all members of the Israeli Hisadrut. So we have no uh, trade union or labor bodies that represent us as a people, as a, as a, as a collective, as a kind of a nationally oppressed minority within this kind of broader structure. So everybody in Palestine 48 that was, was going on strike, he was taking illegal action uh, because political strike is not allowed. The Hustadrut does not support the strike. Um, and so everybody that was going on strike uh, was kind of um, doing so knowing that there will be repercussions for them taking that action. In the West Bank, it's different because the whole of the trade union movement supported the general strike, and it's just a completely different context um, of what it means to be on strike um, in the West Bank or in, in, in Gaza. I mean, I, I doubt that anybody at the moment is going to work in any mm-hmm. Uh, but in, 40, in Palestine 48, or for the two million Palestinians that live in Israel today, it's a different. Um, it's a dif- the scenario is is quite different in the sense of what it means to be on strike as a worker. Yeah. But we saw huge support for the strike. It was uh, respected by the mass majority of Palestinians wherever we are, wherever they were, be it in the West Bank or, or um, in Palestine 48 or in Gaza for that matter. And we saw, um, and this was hugely impactful and hugely powerful because Palestinian laborers and workers are central to the Israeli economy. Um, so you had all the kind of small institutions within Palestinian communities shut down. Uh, but not only, because if you think about the construction sector, the Israeli construction sector, for example, is heavily dependent on Palestinian laborers from the West Bank, but also from within uh, within Israel itself. We're talking about over 65,000 Palestinian workers from the West Bank that cross through checkpoints on a daily basis 
to work in the Israeli um, construction construction sector. We're talking about 90,000 Palestinians um, who carriers of Israeli IDs that work in the construction mm-hmm. sector. It's the biggest employer for Palestinians um, in uh, in Israel. Um, and on the strike day, so yesterday, um, out of all of those workers, only 150 workers um, from the West Bank came to work. So the mass majority of Israel's construction sector was shut down, um, shut down yesterday. Um, in comparison with during COVID, um, over uh, over 43 uh, over um, 43,000 workers were Palestinian workers were coming into work in the construction sector. So the strike was heavily um, kind of people engaged with the strike in a very significant kind of way. 30,000 Palestinian sanitation workers in the Israeli kind of uh, sanitation industry also strike. Uh, Palestinians um, in Israel also um, are, a lot of them work in buses, so kind of public, in public transport. They also announced their participation in the strike. Palestinian dentists um, all announced, issued a statement that they are uh, with, uh, with the strike. And we know of huge numbers of Palestinian workers in the Israeli medical sector who have also went on strike. But just to give people a sense of the of, of the magnitude of of, of uh, kind of the reliance of Palestinian labor in this the kind of involvement in the medical sector, so seventeen percent of physicians um, in the Israeli medical sector are Palestinians. Twenty four percent of nurses are also Palestinian. 47% of pharmacists are Palestinians. So Palestinians have a huge power when we're talking about kind of their ability. To, they, they have a huge industrial power um, to take. Um, and, and we saw that they engaged with it massively yesterday. But again, the question and the issue of the lack of um, trade union representation for Palestinian workers within the Israeli um, economy and within Israeli industries uh, is a big question that has been rising uh, and probably more <laughs> starkly this time than ever before. And there's more and more voices now talking about the need and the necessity for self-organization for Palestinian workers that work in the Israeli um, in the Israeli industry. Um, because in the West Bank, there are big trade unions. Mm-hmm. The level of um, uh, um, unionization is very low. Uh, trade unions there are embroiled in kind of politics. They are very much embroiled <laughs> into the political picture. Um, but we saw that they can come out in force, um, and they did during the strike. But it's important to also recognize that this that the trade union movement um, joined on, but the strike was not led by the trade union yeah. movement. It was one that was pushed for from below, from the movement on the streets. Before we move on into some of these specifics, um, I saw, you know, a lot of pictures of empty storefronts, but what was the feeling like of just being there, watching everything shut down? Um, to be honest, it was, um, it was exhilarating. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it was a huge, there was a really strong feeling of the power of collective organizing, of what mm-hmm. that could mean, what. Palestinian unity looks like um, in the sense that 
we weren't just on strike in Palestine in Palestine 48 or amongst communities um, in in um, in kind of Israel, but it was the whole of Palestine was coming together under the banner of a general strike. It was called the general strike of dignity and hope. Um, for the 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 idea was that we would join that we weren't just joining each other or together or collectively in action in terms of direct resistance in terms of conf- direct confrontation with kind of the the armed wings of the settler colony be whatever in whatever shape or form they take but that actually it, the general strike gives a feeling of this kind of a huge power and collectivity that we do have so in Haifa, the city that I am based in at the moment, we had a program from the morning until the evening. It wasn't a general strike where people would go, uh, would be sitting at home. We were occupying the streets with this general strike. We were out. We were declaring our power of our collective uh, unity um, that was felt that day. Um, and that that was really the central power and the, and the message of the strike is that when we as Palestinians, transcend our fragmented geographies and transcend the fragmentation that um, the Israel settler colonial project has been trying to instill in us, right? Like settler colonialism is based on attempting to fragment um, the community, our community politically uh, and socially, um, as well as not. it's not only a question of geography. And so what we've seen over the past week is people coming out and saying that that project has failed, that Palestinians everywhere are united in their oppression and they're united in their resistance. And the general strike really kind of hit home with that. It really made, made us all feel that we are all in this together. We're kind of taking this collective action and we have the power to transform if we do, if we do engage in this way. And it was telling that... The call for the general strike was made that the political parties, that the trade union movement, that be it whoever it is, that is kind of sees themselves as a representative of the Palestinian people, was forced to call for this general strike because there were calls for the past week from below, from the movement, on demonstrations, uh, political activists, normal people just saying the next step needs to be a general strike. So this was a popular demand. And the fact that it was a popular demand was really felt um, yesterday in the sense of the participation, but the nature of it. So you had activity, political, um, you had political workshops taking place on the street in terms of educating people and informing them about their political when they're being arrested. You had activities for kids, you had story readings, you had film screenings. And of course, you had demonstrations at the end of the day because strikes are not a passive act, right? They are um, they are a kind of a show of power, but they're also spaces where you you continue to resist and you continue to confront the oppressive structures. And so we didn't have the scenes that you would have kind of maybe in other places during general strikes where people would kind of or strikes generally where people would kind of stand outside of their workplace and kind of shut it down in that way uh, because it's fundamentally a political strike um, that has economic implications and not the other way around. Yeah. Um, So can you tell us a little bit more about the labor movement in Palestine? Um, What role sort of more recently have the unions played in resisting the occupation? 
Yeah, so I guess maybe we'd go back a little bit in history uh, <laughs> um, to before the colonization of Palestine. I mean, in 1936, um, the Palestinian National Liberation Movement called for a general strike. It was an open-ended general strike at the time. Palestine was under British colonialism and British colonial powers were kind of given signals that they are being getting prepping to give Palestine away to the Zionist movement that then established the Israeli, um, the Israeli state. Um, and Palestinians called for a general strike. It was from 1936 until 1939, uh, and it was called the Palestine Revolt at the time. Then Palestinian labor movement was strong. It was majority Palestinian workers working in the kind of British established um, industry. So you're talking about railways, you're talking about all the refineries and factories and hay fires. It was established as an industrial city during British colonial rule. It still is an industrial uh, an industrial city. So there is a history of kind of, lay, of, of, of calling for general strikes as part of resistance to colonialism and in stri- as part of our general struggle for liberation. The first intifada in 1987 was also launched by a Palestinian general general strike that was, again, it was a cross-Palestinian general strike, including Palestinian communities in Israel, in West Bank, Gaza, um, and, uh, and so on. Um, in truth, when we're talking about the Palestinian labor movement, we cannot talk about it in abstract form political parties and political organization. Um, and so you have, the labor movement is very much linked to um, political parties and political factions in the occupied West Bank and in Gaza, uh, and in Gaza as well. Um, and, and they play, and, and like labor movements generally across the world, <laughs> they have been depoliticized um, in the sense of what they offer their, wor- their, their workers, like kind of how do they situate and articulate labor struggles as part of the broader um, the broader struggle for liberation, they will play lip service to this. But actually, the trade union movement is one in, in the West Bank and in Gaza is one that is mirrored with corruption. It is one that it is very much linked to political faction, factionalism. Um, and again, the mass majority of Palestinian workers are not in any kind of form of, uh, uh, are not inscribed to a trade um to a trade union. So the trade union movement, if we're talking about kind of trade unions and not labor, like not workers, they're not in a place um, that we would, that one would aspire for trade unions to be in, right? Um, Yes. (laughs) We know all about that. (laughs) That many many can relate to. And, And maybe just add that this turn specifically happened uh, after the Oslo agreements in 1993 and the establishment of the Palestinian Authority, where kind of political power mobilized trade unions for its own ends and its own goals. Um, so the trade union movement became very much tied to the Palestinian Authority. And we all know what role the Palestinian Authority plays today on the political on the Palestinian political landscape. The Palestinian Authority is basically uh, an arm of the Israeli settler colonial project. They are, by 
any standards of any kind of people that are in revolt and are in a struggle for liberation. They are collaborators with our colonizers, um, and they use uh, the trade union movement for those for those gains. But again, the power of, of what is happening now is that they had to be involved. Like it was, you know, to 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 kind of again, it's it's speaking of the power of of, of the movement on the street and the power of popular demands from below that are forcing the trade union movement to move, despite the fact that they didn't want to call a general strike. While saying that, while recognizing that this is, is the reality, there are attempts uh, constantly on the ground to build alternatives, um, to build alternative representations, to build alternative trade union bodies uh, that that kind of are move away from this kind of general way of bureaucratic trade unionism of going back to political trade unions that work for the benefit of their workers and not kind of just implementing political policy from from above. Uh, and so you have new conglomerates like the independent trade unions that are emerging. You have uh, collective, you know, groups like the new unions that are um, that are emerging. Some of these have been rec- registered and recognized. Some of them are not registered and not recognized, but they still operate. Of course, they are still small, but they are interesting and good new developments that are happening on the ground. And also there are fractures within these kind of big established trade unions. So, for example, in 2016, there was a big uh, strike by teachers uh, in Palestine, because the mass majority of teachers in Palestine are employed by the Palestinian Authority, they are paid by the Palestinian Authority. The Palestinian Authority is the biggest employer of Palestinians in the West Bank and in Gaza. Um, and and they um, and it wasn't the official trade union that called this for strike. It was a fraction, you know. It was kind of people split out from the general trade union of teachers. And called for a strike and took and took action because of lack of pay. So um, the Palestinian Authority often doesn't pay its uh, the, its public employees under the pretense that they are not getting clearance revenues from Israel. Clearance revenues are the money that Israel collects on behalf of the Palestinian Authority for any import and export of produce. From the West Bank and uh, from the West Bank, because the Palestinian Authority has no control over borders, so everything that leaves the West Bank and enters the West Bank has to go through Israeli ports uh, and 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 through um, an okay of Israeli authorities, and Israel and Israel collects taxes on those. Those taxes mm-hmm. are meant to then be transferred to the Palestinian Authority, and out of those taxes. The Palestinian Authority kind of then distributes salaries, um, but often what people talk about is that the upper shalon of the Palestinian Authority still get paid, <laughs> while you know teachers, um, doctors, and nurses in the West Bank and in Gaza have to constantly endure pay cuts. Um, and just to maybe give people a sense of what the minimal minimum national national wage in Palestine is in the West Bank and Gaza it's 1450 shekels um i don't know how much that translates into uh dollars i probably should have thought about this before 
but it's nowhere near enough for people to live. Uh, and, the, and about, you know, and, and the majority of people even receive less than this pay. Um, and so in 2016, teachers had enough, right? Like, so a section, even though the trade union leadership didn't want to call for a strike, didn't want to take action to defend their members, some members organized, it was mostly organized on a local level. So you had the local kind of trade union branches mm-hmm. away do it and taking direct action um, and, and going on strike. Uh, it was specifically and predominantly and most strongly supported in, uh, in Hebron, one of the biggest kind of industrial, also biggest cities in the south of the West Bank. Um, and those workers... They, they 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 went on a very kind of big strong heroic strike it kind of went across the whole of the of, of the West Bank and forced the trade union leadership to then kind of come come along with them um, but again just to maybe put you in the picture that those workers who were on strike they were heavily attacked by Palestinian Authority security forces there was um, you know they would go into uh, trade union leaders' homes, arrest them, attack them, uh, and so on. And so I guess it's important for people to recognize that if you are a Palestinian trade unionist in the West Bank, it is not only the Israeli occupation that you are facing. Um, it is also very much the heavy-handed, militarized, brutal hand of the Palestinian Authority um, that you have to contend with and deal with as well. What has been the the level of sort of international solidarity with the strike and with the actions this week? I know that there were Italian workers who refused to load, um, I believe, weapons that were going to Israel. But what have you sort of seen and heard from from trade unions around the world in support of this? Yeah, so I think like that action by the Italian tra- trade unionists or dock workers is precisely the kind of action that the trade union movement can play and should play. Um, in terms of, you know, the trade union movement has the power to take action that transforms reality on the ground. Trade union movement can go beyond kind of semantic solidarity or declarations of solidarity. Um, we have the power and the labor movement has the power to take action that transforms life um, and that directly curbs Israel's efforts um, and ability to inflict harm on Palestinian bodies and the Palestinian people and workers wherever they were. So I think that's the kind of example that we need to, the trade union movement needs to follow. Um, and we have seen an overpouring of solidarity, actually. Um, we called on the international trade union movement to kind of come out in solidarity of the general strike, to take action, to educate their member and where they can to kind of uh, uh, take direct action and take strike action and to use their collective, uh, their, you know, their collective power uh, just to be in solidarity with people in, um, in Palestine. Uh, and so it's been, it's been great. Like we've seen labor unions from the Spanish, across the Spanish state um, coming out in solidarity. We've seen uh, the GMB, for example, in the UK, the fire brigades union has refused to, yes, I saw that. Yeah. So some activists occupied the roof of the Elbit Systems factory um, in the UK. Uh, Elbit Systems is an Israeli company, a weapons manufacturing company, particularly drones. 
and activists have occupied the roof of that factory and trade unionists from the GMB refused to bring them down. And I think it's these kind of small actions that are not very small, like these, when they tie up together, they make a very fundamental difference, both on the kind of Israel's ability to inflict harm, but also the feeling that we receive in Palestine of the trade union movement actually taking action to be in solidarity. And it's not just kind of statements of solidarity, but it's actually direct action of solidarity. Excellent. Um, so I know you have to run. Is there anything else you wanted to say before I let you go? Um, I just wanted to say that um, first to thank everybody that has been kind of um, supporting, campaigning, talking about Palestine in any kind of capacity that they can. I think it's absolutely fundamental that we keep pushing wherever we are to kind of emphasize, highlight Palestinian voices to to explain what's happening in Palestine, not in kind of simplistic ways, but actually to contend with the reality that the situation is simple, but there's many factors and there's many issues that we have, that people have to learn and perhaps have to educate themselves about what is taking place um, in Palestine. And that's a very important work that needs to be done. And I think trade unionists should be pushing for their trade unions to take direct action. Um, if you are a trade unionist and your pension fund is investing in any kind of Israeli entity or international entity that is uh, empowering Israel's regime of oppression, then you have the power and you have the responsibility to take action. If you are a worker where uh, produce is going through to Israel, you have the power to act and you should take the power to act to stop that produce from reaching or equipment from reaching uh, Israel. If you are a worker that handles produce, equipment, uh, technology that is coming from Israel, you have the power to act and stop uh, uh, and stop kind of the circulation of capital going back to Israel and empowering it to continue doing what it is doing. I think every trade unionist has a power to act and has the ability to act. Um, and that's the power of, of trade unionism. Like that is the power of international workers' solidarity. We can shape each other's realities and we have the responsibility to shape each other's reality. And that is the true meaning of solidarity. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. That was Ria Al-Sineh, a Palestinian political economy researcher, talking about the general strike in Palestine. And now it's time for ARG, I wish I'd written that, where we talk about the pieces that we read and liked but did not write. My pick for this episode is Capitalism and the Caring Economy by Robert Kuttner at the American Prospect. Kuttner begins the piece by praising Biden's American Families Plan, which aims to provide universal preschool, paid family leave, and publicly funded childcare while capping childcare fees for families at 7% of annual income for a typical lower to middle income household. I don't quite share Kuttner's optimism that this plan is a game changer. See our conversation with Alyssa Battistoni in the last episode. But I agree that it's the start of a much needed deep public investment in the care infrastructure. And for a change, it actually aims to boost the wages of childcare workers as well. 
Kuttner goes on to argue that the public investment should be the bedrock of all care industries and profit motives should play no role in dictating the size, scope, and provision of our care sectors. Challenging the conventional neoliberal wisdom that free markets produce the optimal allocation of goods and services, he writes, quote, far too much of the entire caregiving sector has been commercialized by for-profit vendors, from healthcare to residential and home nursing care for the elderly, and even child care and pre-kindergarten. These entrepreneurs use taxpayer dollars and consumer premiums to maximize profits. What's wrong with that? Doesn't the profit motive optimize efficiencies? Not in the caregiving sector, it doesn't. As they say in the business schools, good management produces an alignment of incentives. But mixed caregiving with commercial vendors and incentives are often backwards. And we have seen over and over again how systematically corporate profit-driven care services lead to a degradation in the quality of care or even corruption and abuse, especially during the pandemic. And workers are often the first to be abused when they're working on the front lines, in addition to earning chronically low wages. The shameful nursing home death toll from COVID-19 revealed the tragic ramifications of turning over caregiving duties for elders to corporations that have less interest in keeping your grandma healthy and happy than in turning her home into a lucrative real estate investment. And the consequences for labor rights are just as horrific. Poverty wages, grueling work schedules, high risk of injury and infection, and of course, the deep segregation of the care workforce that results in most of the frontline jobs being done by the poor, immigrants, women, people of color, often with little opportunity for upward mobility and no union representation. In childcare, we see fewer of these egregious horror stories that we've seen in nursing homes during the pandemic, in part because of the nature of the disease itself, but also because of the decentralized structure of the sector, with many providers being smaller and neighborhood-based. But childcare is still treated as a commodity rather than a public good. The government subsidizes care through a means-tested voucher system in which poor parents must apply to get a subsidy for their child care fees, which are in turn spent on a child care provider that the parent chooses. These subsidies are notoriously precarious and many people fall out of eligibility, but even when they work, they're often pretty dysfunctional. This idea of parental choice is well-intentioned enabling families to choose which care setting is right for their kid, be it a family child care home, in the neighborhood, or a larger daycare center. But it also creates a chaotic system in which parents are often charged onerous co-pays because their subsidies don't cover the full cost. Alternatively, the child care provider has to forgo the co-payment because the parents simply can't pay and they don't want to turn the parent away. And that leaves the system heavily under-resourced. Biden's plan actually does not fundamentally alter this market-based system, though it does promise to boost subsidies. Kuttner cites the example of for-profit medical institutions as a further example of perverse incentives and corrupt profit motives. Quote, even in normal times, for-profit hospitals and nursing homes have myriad ways to game the system. They throw money at the cases that provide the most reimbursement and avoid needy people who are not profit centers. They dump special needs kids and overstressed public systems. They count on the dedication of caregivers to tolerate lousy pay, ill treatment, and understaffing, unquote. There are different models out there, of course. The U.S. is, in fact, terribly unique in the way we outsource so much of the government's social responsibilities to the private sector. Kuttner points out, quote, other basically capitalist countries, through the strength of the labor movement and social democratic parties and decades of political struggle, have managed to put a ring fence around most of the caregiving sector. Here's a social realm where capitalists don't get to play. So in most of Europe, child care and pre-K, residential and home nursing care, and above all, health insurance are either run by public entities or by nonprofits. Yes, there are budget constraints, but nobody gets rich by stinting on care, unquote. That doesn't mean that profiteering and privatization are not ever looming threats to healthcare and social services in Europe. 
In the UK, even the cherished National Health Service has been eroded by years of austerity budgets, as well as various privatization-oriented reform schemes. But at least these institutions are, relatively speaking, shielded from the vicissitudes of the so-called free market, compared to the US anyway. While workers still face exploitative conditions, in the UK they have a political voice as part of the unionized public sector workforce. Kuttner focuses mainly on for-profit care businesses, but I would extend this analysis to the private sector writ large, including nonprofits. After all, among nursing homes, nonprofit organizations are not immune to the types of health and safety failures that plague their for-profit counterparts. And the type of ownership, per se, may not even be the central issue. It's how comprehensively they are regulated by the government. Care is something that we will all need and that most of us will do at some point in our lives, sometimes within our own family, as volunteers, sometimes as a service that costs money. In a civilized democracy, one critical responsibility of the state is to ensure that when we need that care, from our loved ones or from skilled professionals, money should be the least of our worries. This administration may finally be starting to grapple with the true value of care. But its main challenge now is to figure out a fair way to pay that cost, without putting on the backs of the most exploited workers and our most vulnerable loved ones. So... Amazon has decided that its workers are at risk of burning out and it's going to do something about it. What? No, 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 not recognize the union or anything. No, it's a workplace wellness program. We all know how great those are, right? Well, Edward Ungueso Jr. wrote all about it for all of our edification in a piece at Vice called Amazon's new Amazen program will show warehouse workers meditation videos. Yeah. He writes, quote, on Monday, Amazon announced Working Well, a new program that it claims helps make its workplaces safe by drastically cutting injury rates by fortifying each worker's mind. The program will feature physical and mental activities, wellness exercises, and healthy eating support that are scientifically proven to help them recharge and re-energize. Part of the program will see the rollout of what Amazon is calling Amazen, which sounds like it came straight from the writer's room at Black Mirror. Amazon guides employees through mindfulness practices in individual interactive kiosks at buildings, according to a press release. During shifts, employees can visit Amazon stations and watch short videos featuring easy-to-follow well-being activities, including guided meditations, positive affirmations, calming scenes with sounds, and more. End quote. Amazon couldn't make this garbage up. And of course, it sounds like it's just more work. Quote, workers will also get hourly prompts at their workstations, guiding them through a series of scientifically proven physical and mental activities to help recharge and re-energize and ultimately reduce the risk of injury. End quote. So rather than giving them, I don't know, more time to complete their tasks, they're adding another task on top of it. Now you have to pack boxes at top speed and also complete your scientifically proven physical and mental activities to recharge and re-energize. It's making me exhausted just thinking about it. How about a break? As Angueso writes, quote, Amazon's language conjures up images of robots filling up their batteries instead of human beings being allowed to rest in between demanding physical work. Time and time again, when given the choice between moving away from expecting its workers to perform at Herculean levels or doubling down on methods that allow an extra bit of productivity to be squeezed out, Amazon chooses the latter, end quote. The company says it's spending $300 million on safety projects this year and hopes to cut recordable incident rates 
that recordable is doing a lot of work there, isn't it? By 50% by 2025. But Angueso notes, quote, after all, just last September, it was revealed that Amazon lied to the public and lawmakers about recordable incidents and covered up how its injury rates were increasing nationwide at well over 100 warehouses. The Working Well program offers no guarantees similar cover-ups will not happen again, nor does it offer any solution to the fact that work is so demanding at Amazon that employees urinate in bottles and defecate in bags. End quote. We have talked on this show before about the way self-care has moved from Audre Lorde's revolutionary maxim to another task for people to complete to up their productivity. And this is like that, but on steroids. It's blaming the victim, pushing individual responsibility for the injuries rather than the company's ridiculous pace of work. And recall that the thing that sent West Virginia teachers over the edge into a statewide strike was the demand that they wear Fitbits or other trackers at work to make sure that they were being healthy in order to reduce health insurance costs. Working people are well aware that they don't actually have a lot of power over the work they're expected to do, whether that's sitting at a desk for hours at a time or packing hundreds of items all day long. And the new technology of surveillance means that managers can make wellness just another criteria by which workers are judged and found wanting. If you are an Amazon worker and experiencing any of these programs, by the way, please do get in touch. We would love to hear about them from somebody who's been through them. Belabored at DescentMagazine.org is our email. That is all we have time for this week. Stay tuned for much more on general strikes, Uber drivers, care workers, warehouse work, and working and not working in the age of COVID-19. Thanks as always to the wonderful folks at Descent for hosting us, to Natasha Lewis, and now to Colin Kinneborough for editing us, and most importantly, of course, to all of you who are still listening to us, putting up with my bad jokes, sharing us with your friends, tweeting about us, talking about us, writing to us, and sharing your stories with us. We would especially appreciate it if you can rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It really does actually help us find new listeners. Special thanks to those of you who are and have been sustaining members of the podcast or subscribers to Descent, either at the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored, or on our Patreon with shiny new rewards over at patreon.com slash belabored. We know. We really, really know that it's been rough for everyone this year. And if you don't have the spare cash, there is a reason that we don't put this podcast behind a paywall. We can't be a podcast for and by the working class without, well, being accessible to the working class. But if you do happen to have some spare cash and haven't joined up yet, we have some gorgeous Malay Crabapple worker portraits and tote bags. Yes, we have tote bags. And as always, you can find out more on the Descent website, descentmagazine.org slash belabored. If you want to share your story of work under coronavirus, you can, as always, email us at belabored at descentmagazine.org. If you are a nurse or a lift driver, a fast food worker or a teacher, if you're working in the occupied territories, we want to hear from you. You can tweet at us too at hashtag belabored. Thanks again for listening. Solidarity. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored.